0: You have your bibles would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom literature of your bible so Psalms Proverbs Ecclesiastes right there in the middle easy easy to find Ecclesiastes is one of the books that I think is actually most needed. And we're going to circle back to this, I don't know, 10 years from now or something. I'm going to preach all the way through this book because it's very valuable. Because today we're going to be, in the next two weeks actually, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes. It's going to be 500 foot. But I believe the wisdom that is contained in Ecclesiastes is maybe even more relevant in many of our lives than the wisdom contained in Proverbs. And yet this is kind of the unsung hero here. Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at the first two chapters this morning. But we're going to read right now just verses 1 through 11. From chapter one. God's word says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that's Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams go. There they flow again. Who come after it. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, perhaps no phrase fits more is more fitting to our age than vanity of vanities. We live in an age of seemingly vanity. I pray that, Father, this morning, wherever there are people who are struggling with feelings of disappointment with their life, with disillusionment with their life, with, with these feelings of meaninglessness and purposelessness in their lives, that today, oh Lord, you would meet them there with the gospel, that they would be able to relate to these words and these questions that Solomon poses. And in the midst of these questions, that Lord, they would be able to see the context with which we're intended to live. I pray, Lord, that you would say exactly what you have to say and that you would say nothing more and nothing less. That you would let me remember what needs to be remembered and forget what needs to be forgotten. We come to you and we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I've been thinking a lot lately about my... college graduation. Maybe it's because it's kind of graduation season and seeing all the the graduates and all the things you know. But you know my graduation when I graduated from college it it really wasn't what I expected it to be. I I remember very vividly sitting there at uh, on the football field at uh, at, at Jacksonville State University and being surrounded by people who were so thrilled and so excited and all of them were talking about the job that they were taking or the big move they were about to make or some of them were about to get married, some of them were uh, going to be able to go and, and and realize some of them were going on to, to graduate work. And I remember them all being around me and jovial and excited and just Thrilled with the accomplishment of being able to be at that day, that moment that you've been thinking about since you started school in kindergarten. And just feeling empty. Just feeling empty. That my college graduation is one of the lowest moments of my life being surrounded there by so many people that are so excited and and filled with enthusiasm and filled with optimism about what the future is going to behold. But I was there, and my life was already well-established. I was going to leave the graduation and return to the exact life that I had already, which wasn't a bad life. But there wasn't real excitement, you know? Life felt more ordinary to me than I thought it would feel. Life felt less world-changing than I expected it to be. Life, for me, sitting there in the midst of all these other people that seemed so excited just felt like a disappointment. And it felt like all everybody else's excitement around me and everybody else's enthusiasm around me and everybody else's big, huge, life-changing plans just seemed to just punctuate the reality that my life was ordinary. And my life wasn't going to be much different than what it was. I think that experience is actually pretty common. I didn't realize it at the time, but now with experience, having taught with multiple people, going through these seasons of crisis in their life, I've I've come to realize that most people are disappointed with their lives. Most people. Perhaps you didn't know that. But week after week, conversation after conversation, meal after meal, I sit down with people, and almost to a person, they express how their lives did not end up the way they thought their lives would end up. Their lives did not go according to their expectations and their plans and, their, and, their, and their, uh, the way that they had worked and, and tried to prepare themselves. No matter what they did, their life just ended up not being where it, it was expected to be. And there's something about those milestone moments, those milestones like a college graduation or maybe it's a wedding or it's an anniversary or it's when you, you get the job that you've always been wanting and you get and you experience these milestone moments. And when they don't live up to the hype, it really compounds the sense of disappointment that you have, doesn't it? And when enough of those experiences, enough of those milestones, enough of those disappointments accumulate into your life, it can really cause you to ultimately just start asking, like, what does all of this even matter? What's the point of all of this? That's the question of Ecclesiastes. That's the question of Ecclesiastes. That in the midst of the disappointments of life, in the midst of the difficulties of life, in the midst of the, seeming, the seemingly endless cycle of things to do and places to go and people to be with, what's the point? What's the point? In fact, I think it's important as we get into Ecclesiastes that you understand the, the, the intent with which it's written. A lot of people come to the book of Ecclesiastes and they see it as kind of a downer. You know, you, you come in and you read it, and a matter of fact, some people have, have called uh, uh, Solomon the first existentialist in, in human history, the first great philosopher of existentialism, and, and all these different things, and, but I think that's to really miss the point. To understand the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to understand that there's a phrase that comes up repeatedly. Sometimes it's under heaven. Sometimes it's under the sun. But the, the point is, is that this is based on the perspective from earth. The perspective from man. Being able to be here at ground level in the midst of the groanings, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the depression, in the midst of, of all of the disappointments that are, that are right here. And so Ecclesiastes isn't so much describing reality as it is, it's describing life as it seems. It's how it feels. It's how it looks. And I think the actual point is, is that though this is how it seems, and though this is how it looks, and though this is how it feels, this is not actually how it is. This is not actually how it is. And so here in the, in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, you really are getting kind of the, the, the thrust of the book laid upon you. The, the thesis of the book that, that's coming forward from, uh, from Solomon, from what he refers to himself as the teacher or the, the preacher. And I think we're able to see in these first two chapters three experiences that are actually very common for, for all of us. The first experience is that life appears meaningless. Life appears meaningless. So Ecclesiastes, and this is so valuable, and this is why all of the wisdom literature of the Bible is meant to be taken in totality. We tend to focus on the Proverbs, but really all of it is meant to be taken in totality because Ecclesiastes is actually given to us by the same author of the Proverbs as a means of counterbalancing what we find in the Proverbs. Think about what we find in the Proverbs. The Proverbs describe all of earth as being orderly. That God has created the world and in the creation, God has made the creation orderly. And if you will learn the order with which God has made the world, if you will learn the design of God for all things and live according to that order and that design, then you will flourish as a a person. That, That gives us the kind of wisdom that can lead to human flourishing. And that's certainly true. But Ecclesiastes comes in and it says, yes, God made the earth with an order. God gave the earth a design. But Ecclesiastes comes and counterbalances that and says, but sin has brought disorder into the earth. Sin has brought brokenness into the earth. Sin has taken that which was flawless and perfect and led to human flourishing and made it complicated and difficult and disappointing. That is, it gives us this ability to understand the fullness of our experience here on earth. Yes, proverbs are typically true, generally true, but they're not promises. They're descriptions of wisdom. And if you take the proverbs as promises, then the proverbs as promises actually lead to despair. Here's what I mean. If you read proverbs, it would tend to let you think that if you just do the right things the right way, you'll always have the right outcomes. That if you'll just do the right things the right way, if you'll run your business the right way, if you'll, have, if you'll approach marriage the right way, if you'll raise your kids the right way, if you'll just do the right thing the right ways, then you'll always end up with the right outcomes. I'm thinking of, of Proverbs 22.6. Raise your child in the ways you go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And we have to ask ourselves, is that a promise or is that wisdom? Is that, is that a proverb? Because the truth is, in experience, you can raise your kids in all of the glories of Christ and you can raise your kids and train them under the scriptures and and catechize them with the Westminster Catechism. And you can can go and you can have them in church every time the doors are open and you can gather them and pray over them just like I prayed over my son last night. And you can tell them how good God has been and you can testify. But they can still rebel, can't they? And it's not a failure of the faithfulness of God. It's a reality of living in a disappointing world. It's a reality of living in a world that is, that is languishing and struggling. But there's this feeling. That if our expectation is if I do the right things the right way, I'll have the right outcomes. That though I live a noble life and though I live an honorable life and though I live a life of fidelity and integrity, my life goes astray. So what difference does it make? What difference does it make what I do? What difference does it make if I'm a man of integrity or not? Have you ever felt this way? And then you look over and the person who is living without integrity, the person who is living and operating their business without integrity, they seem to be flourishing while you're languishing. That's exactly why he gets to what he's getting at in verse two. And he says, "Vanity of vanities, all is vanity." That's really the thesis of the book, that from this earth, Living according to the wisdom of God and the design of God often feels meaningless. It often feels pointless. It often feels hopeless. He begins to to probe into this idea that everything is vanity with with some some big questions that I think most of us are asking. And we can probably identify with the questions that that Solomon is asking. The first question he has is, does my effort matter? Does my effort matter? Look at verse 3. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. You ever felt that way? Like, what's the point? I get up and I go and I work 60 hours a week and I come home and I make sure that the yard is cut or I make sure that the kids are fed and we do bath time and homework. And I go, and I just collapse in my bed. They tell me I'm supposed to get eight hours of sleep. I'm lucky if I get six hours of sleep. And then at the end of the day, it still feels like my life is filled with disappointments. We think Proverbs typically teaches that life is about cause and effect. And generally, of course, that's true. If you work hard and study hard, it's going to go better with you than if you sleep in and are lazy and never put forth effort. Of course, that's generally true. But sometimes it's just not, is it? Sometimes it's just not. Sometimes you do all the right things, and it still seems like everything unravels around you. Sometimes you put in all of the work only to see all of the work go up in flames. What's the point? What does man gain by all the toil? Solomon's asking that question and he's asking that question and he he zooms out and he says, let's look at the big picture. And and you would think he's gonna zoom out the big picture so you feel better. That is not the case. (laughs) He zooms out and he says, no matter what I do or don't do, The sun rises and sets. No matter what I do or I don't do, the wind comes and the wind goes and it's like it's on a circuit. And there is nothing that I can do to predict it. There's nothing that I can do to change it. There's nothing that I can do to stop it. He says it's, it's the, the, the rivers and the streams, they keep dumping into the ocean. And, he, and he's getting to the, to the point of the hopelessness of all this. And he says as much and as endlessly as they're dumping into the ocean, the ocean is never satisfied. The ocean is never full. The ocean never has enough water. The ocean just keeps consuming. Is that how your life feels? My goodness, that's how mine feels a lot. That's how mine feels a lot. That despite how hard I try to work, it seems like the harder you work, the more true it is that no good deed goes unpunished, right? That you go and you try to do good for your kids and your kids resent you for it. You try to do good for your church and your church doesn't want you to change things the way you're changing them. And you try to help your neighbor and your neighbor really just wants you to stay out of their business. It's like no matter what I do, I just keep coming up short no matter what I do. It doesn't seem to matter. In your life, when you think about all that you're doing for your kids and the way that you're working at your job and how you're trying to be team mom and you're trying to be the the hallmark dad and you're trying to be a good husband and a good dad, and, and yet you still are filled with disappointment, doesn't it just feel meaningless? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Does my effort even matter? But not only is it, does my effort matter, does my endurance matter? Does my endurance matter? That it he, that he has in mind here not just the impact of our lives or lack thereof, but the exhaustion that, re, that results. Look at verse 8. It says, All things are full of weariness. Now, who, what, what's included in all things? All things, right? So a man is part of that. We are included in the all things of creation. That that he's saying everything around us is exhausted. Everything around us is sweating and toiling and laboring and wondering why it is. I often quote to you Romans chapter 8 when I talk about the futility of this earth. And more than one uh, commentator believes that perhaps Paul was meditating here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 when he writes uh, Romans chapter 8. And he talks about that the earth was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected. How he goes on to describe all of the earth as, as grunting and groaning and struggling forward. That is, you you could probably rewrite what Paul Paul wrote and keep the same intent of Paul in Romans 8.20 if you said, for the creation was subjected to vanity. For the creation was subjected to the appearance and feelings of purposelessness and meaninglessness and pointlessness. See, if you read Proverbs, you can have a very neat and tidy theology, can't you? A plus B equals C. That if I work like the ant, let's go back and remember Proverbs chapter 6, we talked about the wisdom of the ant. If I I get up early and work like the ant, then I'm going to prosper. If I raise my kids in the way they should go, then they will not depart from it. That, That in some way, I can take control of my own destiny by my own willpower and my own work and my own effort. And by putting myself forward in my effort and my willpower and doing things that God has said in Proverbs, that I can end up in the place that I desire ending up. But what Paul and Solomon before him are pointing out to us is what we already know. Human experience is more complex than that, isn't it? Human experience is more complicated than that. There are disorders in this world that we struggle to even wrap our minds around. There is loss in this world that we don't even know how to articulate. There there is exhaustion down in our bones, down in our soul. So that there is a gaping hole that we try and try and try to fill with all of our effort. But our theology, no matter how neat and tidy it may seem, just isn't comprehensive enough to satisfy what we're looking for. And so there's a sense in which what Solomon is saying, what Ecclesiastes is preaching to us is that we need a theology that is as messy and mysterious as life is. That we need a theology that can absorb the reality of a child that gets sick even though they're in a home that loves them and have a God that cares for them. We need a theology that can handle what happens when you lose your job or your business goes belly up. We need need a theology that can handle a a cancer diagnosis in the prime of life. even Even though you're living honorable. Even though there is not some gross, unconfessed sin in your life. That there is these problems, these groanings, this exhaustion that finds us. Because of the complexity of living in an Ecclesiastes world. Because if you don't, if your theology is too tight, if it's, if it's too neat, if it's too rigidly proverbial, when your child gets sick, when your husband runs off, when your business goes belly up, you throw your hands up and you say, what was the point of all of this? Vanity of vanities. What does it actually mean? He lands what I think is the great question of chapter one. Not only does my effort matter, not only does my endurance matter, but does my existence matter? That what we're seeing here in Solomon is an existential crisis. Who am I and what is the point of my life? It's very interesting the way that he draws this up. In Western society, we talk a lot about being the, we, we conceive a lot of ourselves as being the sum of our achievements and the sum of our accomplishments. And Solomon actually places this question of existential crisis in the backdrop of great achievement, of, of, in the backdrop of great discovery. Look at what he says in verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is, what, no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after him. Do, do, do you hear what he's, he's saying? He, he's saying, what happened yesterday, that's the same thing that's going to happen today. And what's happening today is the same thing that's going to happen tomorrow. That we are in the context of humanity that has existed as long as Adam and Eve have roamed this earth. And it is we are to live to suffer, we are to live, to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. To live, to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. Does that encourage you? Aren't you glad you came to church? He says, You want to talk about accomplishments? None of your discoveries are actually that world-changing. Nothing is actually that new. You don't actually change anything. You may discover the cure for cancer, but the person's still going to die. You may worry yourself sick, trying to make sure that your kids are as safe as possible, but your kids are still going to suffer. You may live every single day being working out, waking up and exercising and going to Planet Fitness and doing the thing and eating organic, free range, everything and being as healthy as possible. But at some point, your health is still going to fail. What happened yesterday is going to happen today. And what's happening right here in front of us is going to happen yet again tomorrow. That ultimately, in the grand scheme, we are all the same. So what does it matter? It all feels like vanity. It all feels hopeless and pointless. So Solomon does what's natural. Solomon does what all of us, in some form or fashion, have done over the course of our lives, and if we're not careful, continue to do even after we find Christ. He does what comes natural. He begins to search for a way to feel differently. He begins to search for a way to feel differently. He begins to search for a way, as human beings are meaning makers, he begins to search for a way in which he can find satisfaction, a way a way in which he can find meaning in this life, only to discover that nothing seems to help him. Nothing seems to help him. And so there's a sense in which he's putting this forward, and we're going to share some common experience with him, but there's another sense in which he's putting this forward, especially for those of you who are young. Remember, wisdom literature, largely written for the youth, putting this forward so that you can see them as warnings that you might avoid the same thoughts and the same traps. We're going to have to cover these really quickly. I wish we could hang out, and we're going to come back and hang out one day, but uh, but we're going to be able to zoom out and see the big picture of what Solomon's saying. So the first thing he says is that you can't learn enough. You can't learn enough. Living post-enlightenment, all of us fall under this trap that if I can just know a little bit extra, if I can just read one more book, if I can just listen to one more podcast, if I can just come across the right blog, right? Listen to what he says. He says, I applied. I gave my full force of my mind and my heart. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Under heaven is referring to the kind of wisdom that is found here on earth. This is a, this is a secular wisdom, right? A secular wisdom. And I see my oh, look the same there. A secular wisdom. So She says, I went and I've searched out all, all the wisdom that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. There is a particular personality type that is particularly susceptible to this. That you think that if I can just inform my intellect a little bit more, if I can just read a little bit more, if I can just study a little bit more, if I can just go a little bit deeper into into scientific naturalism, to have a, a bigger understanding of how this world works, then I'll understand my place in it if i can just study psychology a little bit deeper then i'll understand why i'm having the thoughts that i'm having and the, and the questions that i'm having if i can just go and i can i can study sociology then i can understand then i can understand why i'm feeling all the pressures of this world around me a little bit better and i'll know where i fit If I can just study human nature a little bit more and anthropology, if if I can just go and I can inform my intellect, by informing my intellect, by coming to the right guru, finding the right source, identifying the right counselor, I can come to a place where finally I have enough understanding so that I won't feel so purposeless, so that my life won't feel so meaningless. And Solomon in his day was a man of the most renowned wisdom, a man of a towering intellect. You read the scriptures and you can see that this man was a scientist and an astronomer. He he was a man that was able to identify and, and dissect the world around him in a way that most of us can't even begin to fathom. And he says, I have searched it out and I have read the books and I have studied the universe. And what I have come to realize through all of my knowledge is that I just don't know very much. I just don't know very much. That chasing after this elusive knowledge that will give me the insights of life actually is just chasing after wind. And what it means to chase after wind is to get really tired, really frustrated, and gain nothing. To run as hard as you can for as far as you can after something you can never catch. So I want you to look at how he summarizes it in verse 18. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. The more I study, the more confused I am. And he who is increased, he who increases knowledge increases what? Sorrow. It's not lost on us, is it? That many of our geniuses are chronically depressed. Is that lost on us? Did you know that a high IQ is actually a risk factor for mental illness like depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder? Brothers and sisters, our answers are not found in an enlightened intellect. Intellect though we ought to love the Lord with all of our minds, our answers are found somewhere deeper, somewhere bigger, somewhere more profound. You can't learn enough and you can't be free enough. My goodness, if there is a single value of American theology, it is freedom. That is our religion. Freedom is our religion. Some of us want freedom, and we want freedom to go and live off the grid. Some of us want freedom. We want it financially so that we can have whatever we want and do whatever we want. We want freedom so that we can make the decisions that we want to make without any accountability or recourse. We want freedom to to do all the things that come to our mind, and even things that haven't come to our mind yet but we think might one day, right? And we think that if we can just be free enough, then we can be happy. Then we can be happy. Then we can feel like our life matters. Then we can feel like we know our place. But, but Solomon goes on and he says, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I will test you with flee. Enjoy yourself. But behold, also this was vanity. Look at verse 10, what he says. And see if this doesn't sound like the culture within which we live. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, Solomon said, whatever my heart wanted, I I went and got. Whatever my eyes saw, I went and did. If you read in more detail between those verses that I read, what you'll see is that Solomon ultimately does whatever he wants to do. He says, I drink as much wine as I want to drink. I go to as many parties as I want to go to. I have as much sex as I want to have. And he comes to the end of that and he says, it's all vanity. I don't feel better about life. I don't feel more satisfied in my life. I don't feel feel more established in my life. And so he adds to all of those things that, that he wanted to do, all the things that he wants to have. He says, so I go and I, I build built myself palaces and I made for myself gardens and I, I filled my life with all of the beautiful things of earth and I acquired as much of anything that I could acquire but being able, having done everything that I wanted to do and now possessing everything that I want to possess, I've come to the end to realize that it's just chasing after the wind, man. It's just chasing after the wind. I can't find enough pleasure to satisfy me. I can't acquire enough real estate to feel purposeful in my life. You see, this is a good warning for the way the Western, uh, the Western concept of freedom is portrayed to us. See, I actually think that the Western concept of freedom is compounding the feelings of meaninglessness that all of us are wrestling with here in America. That... that there's this thought process that if I can just have more weekends away with the girls, if I can just have, go to wine tastings in Napa Valley, if I can get back to my fraternity frat house days, if I can acquire a vacation home down in 30A, if I can acquire all of these things, if I can get to a place of financial freedom, then I'll be happy. But what our society and economy has provided for us is the ability to actually attain some of those things only to go and to stand on the balcony of our beach house and be miserable. To find out that we've toiled and labored and aimed and lived for something that just doesn't matter and doesn't satisfy, doesn't help. So Solomon says you can't, be, you can't learn enough, and you can't be free enough, and you can't be important enough. You can't be important enough. Listen to what he says. For, uh, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise just dies like the fool dies. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Do you hear what he's saying? So, so here's what, what I hear so often as life progresses. You, you begin, maybe I can learn enough. You begin, maybe I can do enough. Maybe I can have enough pleasure. Maybe, maybe I can be free enough. And you come to the end of those illusions. So you come to the end of your life and you think, well, maybe I'll just be a person of legacy. Maybe my, I'll, I'll hand down an inheritance to someone and that will be meaningful to them. Solomon's there. Except Solomon comes to the realization that eventually all of that's going to go away. That no matter how great the kingdom is that he leaves behind to his successor, he's one successor away from all of his work being undone. In fact, Solomon's own life is an illustration of that reality, as we saw last week. That we live our lives hoping, hoping that someone will remember us when the truth is, is we're all within a generation of being forgotten. And when you begin to realize that we're all within a generation of being forgotten, it's easy to start asking what? Then what's the point? I mean, think about this. Think about the greatest American, George Washington. You think you know George Washington? You may know his name. You may know that he was the general of the Continental Army. You may know that he was the first president. You may know that he, they wanted to make him the king, but he refused. But do you know what kind of husband he was? Do you know what kind of dad he was? In fact, can you name five facts, five legitimate facts about George Washington? You probably name three or four, but can you name five? What kind of neighbor was he? What kind of friend was he? What were his hobbies? You don't know George Washington very well. And he's the greatest American in history. How about about, let's bring it more personal. Let's bring it closer to home. Can you name all of your great-grandparents? I met all of my great-grandparents, and I'm still not sure that I can name them all. Our legacies don't mean what we think they mean. And when we come to the realization that looking back and realizing how we've thought of the other generation, we can assume the next generation is going to say, what happened yesterday is what's going to happen today. What happens today is what's going to happen tomorrow. We are going to live, suffer, die, and be forgotten. No matter how important we feel, we really aren't going to be that important when we go from dust to dust. In fact, it's going to feel like we were just chasing wind the whole time can't be important enough, and you can't work hard enough. You can't work hard enough. If half of America thinks that you can find meaning through freedom, the other half thinks that you can find meaning through work, that you can find meaning by by going to work and raising the standard of living for your family, by by going to work and earning and and having prestige and working your way up the, the corporate ladder. Solomon thought that. He said, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. That word's back. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Do you hear what he says? I work all day. See if you can relate to Solomon here. I work all day and I go and I and I pay the man and I do the thing. And I alarm plot goes off and I hit it, and I get up and I get this chủ- and I do the stuff. And then I go home and I ought to be resting and I ought to be sleeping. and I ought to be enjoying some of the fruit of my labor but even when I'm at home my heart isn't resting my mind is still worried with work even when my body is not there if you think back to our time in the song of Solomon when Solomon comes to his beloved in the middle of the night after working alone we can see that probably Solomon was a bit of a workaholic wasn't he and Solomon doesn't, doesn't just work a lot Solomon has a meaningful job Solomon has a job of great importance he's the stinking king of God's people And yet we still are under the illusion that if I work well enough at a job that is satisfying enough, that in that I can find a purpose. Of course, Proverbs Proverbs teaches us that within that there is dignity. Within that there is the the pleasure of God. Within that is is the way for us to bring glory and honor to the Lord and the way the Lord provides for us. But in that we can't find purpose. We can't find meaning. We're assigning it to something that it just... It just can't hold. And what Solomon comes to the realization is something that all of us need to understand this morning is every single one of us are going to work every day, day in, day out, 60, 70 hours at a time, come home, worrying ourselves sick just so that we can provide for our kids' yard sale one day. Just so they can come and put a for sale sign and say, hey y'all, come buy all my parents' junk. And we're taking these values And we're we're perpetuating them to the next generation. And we're teaching them that this is the same way that you'll find value. This is the same way that you'll find satisfaction. We train our children on how to achieve, on how to work, on how to succeed, on how to get the trophy, on how to get the A, on how to get the the scholarship, on how to get the job, but we don't teach them who they are. Sometimes I wonder... I wonder what our kids are going to do with that box of trophies that we sold out their faith for them to attain. And one day, one day, they're going to be just like you are. They're going to come to a moment of identity crisis. and They're going to want to know who they are and why they matter. They're going to go and they're going to see first place trophies and certificates on the wall and honor student banners. And not a single one of them is going to comfort them. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't help. Solomon says that our experiences here on earth as we seek to try and find meaning and take control of our lives lead to disappointment, then disillusionment, and ultimately to death. So we have to find meaning in another way. And it's the shortest part of the sermon because it's the shortest part of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes wants you to feel the, the gravity and the weight of, the, of, a, of trying to find meaning in that which is meaningless. Trying to find purpose in that which is vanity of vanities. But he lands by saying meaning comes by faith. That is, he says that Proverbs is valuable insofar as you place Proverbs in its intended context. In its intended context. Of course you should wear it like the ant. Of course you should raise your children in the way that they should go. Of course you should be a good neighbor and a good friend. Of course you should be a great employee. Of course all of those things are true. But none of those things in and of themselves are wisdom, are they? Now what's what's wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is that there's, there's this, these, these probing questions of the soul, this yearning of the Spirit is pointing you to the reality that there is more than this. All the w- things that we do, knowledge, freedom, work, legacy, all of those, you know what they are? They are attempts for us to re- by, by us to reassert control over our lives. And the more we try to reassert control over our lives, the more we become convinced of how meaningless our lives must be. So Solomon lands on verse twenty four and he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. How do you enjoy your toil, Solomon? How is it that I can go to work and put in the hours and come home and actually be able to enjoy what's happened? How is it, Solomon, that I can raise a family that, uh filled with kids and have a marriage? How can I actually enjoy my family and enjoy my kids rather than worrying myself sick? How is it, Solomon, that I can enjoy the freedoms that you have provided for me through Christ? How is it possible? This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. If you go back, the very last sentences of of Ecclesiastes lands lands right here. So this is where the the thesis is taking you the whole time. This is the the underpinning of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, that the end of the matter all has been heard. God. Does that sound like Proverbs 1-7 to you? And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon is saying here that these yearnings, this seeming vanity of life, these feelings of meaningless in our existence here are pointing us to the reality that there is more than this. There is more than this. And you can try to assert control over this life to find your meaning only to realize you're not in control and that your life only feels more meaningless until you come to the place in which your feelings of vanity and meaninglessness are placed in the context of the fear of the Lord. That meaning is not found through knowledge. It's not found through freedom. It's not found through a prestigious name. It is not found through work. Meaning comes through Faith, meaning doesn't come through control, it comes by faith in God's grace. See, Ecclesiastes is longing for an immortal body, a body that doesn't die, a body that isn't forgotten, a body that isn't abandoned, and an imperishable kingdom. That what Ecclesiastes, the answer to disappointment and disillusionment and death is the gospel. That there is a kingdom that will not fade. There is a body that will not die because there is a king who has conquered the grave. C.S. Lewis asked it this way. He said, if there is within myself a desire that I cannot satisfy on this earth then the most plausible explanation is that I was meant for another world. That's the message of Ecclesiastes, friends. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. So this morning, don't look within, don't look around, look up to a Savior who has overcome your disappointing life to give you a new life that will not fade and will not fail. Let's pray to the Lord together.